Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Philip Ryken with a fascinating examination of beauty in the Christian life. Beauty is not merely subjective. It is not in the eye of the beholder with a small b, but I think it is in the eye of the beholder with a capital B because God says there is beauty. He himself is beautiful. He is our standard for beauty. Philip Ryken next. The world is full of beautiful things to experience in nature, relationships, art, and of course more. So how should believers think about beauty in a world that is often ugly? In his new book, Beauty is Your Destiny, Wheaton College president Dr. Philip Ryken hopes to awaken a longing for beauty, which can only be satisfied in the face of Jesus Christ. Dr. Ryken, why a book about beauty? It's maybe been a neglected topic in uh, Christian theology and how we, we just think about our relationship with God. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I also think we're in a season where there's an awakening to beauty um, in Christian thought and experience. So if, if that's true, I'm, I'm glad for it and happy to encourage it. Um, you know, every year at Wheaton College, I choose a topic or theme for my chapel messages through the year. I, I preach about 10 times in chapel over the course of our academic year. And during COVID, I, I had um, a greater awareness of certain kinds of beauty. I was at home most of the time. I saw how my garden actually grows day by day and um, actually raised my game a bit in, uh, in, in gardening, as maybe some other people did as well. I also did prob- had probably a little more time for birding, which is one of my hobbies. So there was, I, and I, I found in that time of greater isolation, when there was there were reasons for sadness in the wider world, that I had a little bit elevated appreciation for beauty, a greater desire for it that I noticed. So that that seemed like an important experience to me. And I thought coming out of COVID, that would be a great theme for us to tackle in chapel. And it is a rich biblical theme, theological theme with a lot of practical implications. There's a lot to be said about beauty and beauty relates to so many things in the Christian life. So to me, it was an exciting topic to tackle, and it's it's been you know encouraging to uh, reflect on those messages, get critique, work on the writing, and, and hmm. sharpen my thinking a little bit on beauty. That all came together in this little book. Well, can you define beauty for us? It's a it's an abstract concept. Yeah, and I mean another word for it is ineffable. It's ineffable. That is, it is hard to put into words, and actually. Um, you know, most people that are serious in the realm of aesthetics, which mm-hmm. is the sort of philosophical term that you would use for discussions around beauty, they know it is very hard to define beauty. Nevertheless, it's a term that the Bible uses in various ways with reference, of course, to the beauty of creation, but also to the beauty of God himself and to the beauty of his people. So it's obviously there is there is a reality at the heart of beauty in the book, I'm careful about overestimating my own ability to give a precise definition of beauty. But one thing I want to hold on to, beauty is not merely subjective. It is not in the eye of the beholder 
with a small b, but I think it is in the eye of the beholder with a capital B because God says there is beauty. He himself is beautiful. He is the standard for our, uh, he is our standard for beauty. And um, even though we don't see that perfectly, can't always describe it or define it, may disagree about what is or isn't beautiful. It doesn't mean there isn't such a thing as beauty. And I, I think the Bible's pretty clear on that point. So some things are objectively beautiful. And we have a subjective experience of that beauty, and we may have more or less capacity to appreciate that beauty. By the way, that's one of the reasons I love a Christ-centered liberal arts education like the one we provide at Wheaton College, because when you look at these different disciplines, art, visual art and art history, music, philosophy, literature, you're learning different ways of looking at the world and in learning different ways of looking at the world, you're learning actually expanding your capacity for beauty, the beauty of human communities, the beauty of the human soul. So um, we can enhance our ability to perceive beauty. It's something that we can develop. It's an area where we can grow. Uh, it's not necessarily an easy area, but um, it, it is um, it, one of the reasons why it's good for us to think and talk about beauty is so that we enhance our capacity for appreciating beauty. In one sense, is beauty, uh, to, to talk about it is, it, is it countercultural? Yes and no. I think there is a perennial human appetite for beauty. I think, for example, the fact that people share images of beauty on social media. What do people share? They share things that are funny. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> they share things that make you angry. Oh, yeah. And they also share things that are beautiful, beautiful photographs and images um, and one of the points I make in the book, which I think is an important book, is beauty tends to bring forth copies. Um, you see mm. something beautiful, you want to repeat it, you want to share it, you want others to experience it. It, it, it has a fine, kind of viral quality to it. So in that sense, it's, it's never going to be fully countercultural because there's a deep human desire for the beautiful. I also think and I, I'm not the expert that could really comment on this, but I think overall in the visual arts and in the musical arts, there has been a turn more towards beauty in the last decade or two after a long season of kind of wallowing in things that were ugly or transgressive. So it may be that we're moving into a somewhat more beautiful um, era, but Leaving all of that aside, beauty is one of the most broken things that we experience. So we're always going to be wrestling with the beauty of beauty, but also the brokenness of beauty in this fallen world. And as we contemplate beauty, as we contemplate God himself and various aspects of his being and how beautiful he is, in, in one sense, for us being human beings, do we need somehow to be, not just to be aware of, but to observe the brokenness? We, we know it in ourselves, but to see it in our world, is beauty something that... that does it stand alone or does it need that contrasting broken thing to yeah, put so next to it? A, yeah, you took a little turn there at the end, which is so interesting. So uh, on the one hand, I would say part of our destiny is to behold and to become beauty. So, and, and there's an older generation of theologians long before us that really understood that the, the human hope to gaze upon the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ is the hope of all hopes. And part of that is a beholding of who Jesus in, in his beauty. It is also a becoming because, you know, John says, like, when you see him as he is, you will become like what he is. So um, there, there's a becoming beautiful as well. It may be that in the light of eternity, 
will have even more joy in that beauty because we've experienced its brokenness and the ugliness of a fallen world. But I, I would also have to say, if the world, if there had never been any sin, there would be nothing deficient in the beauty that we would experience in God, in other human beings, mm-hmm. in, in their artistry. So I don't want to say that ugliness is a necessity for our experience of beauty. But I do think that if we are Christians and have an awakened desire for beauty, the brokenness of our fallen world will be more painful for us. And in a way, our experience of beauty will be even more poignantly sweet um, because we we see what is really at stake uh, in beauty and ugliness in all of its dimensions in human life. So when we see something broken, something unjust going on, and we as a believer desire to make it or to try to make it right, to try to bring, if you will, justice to the situation, actually that that's entering in the idea of beauty, that, that there's yeah, been beauty lost. So for sure. The beauty of a reconciled relationship, the beauty of a, of a wrong that has been righted. And I think some of the stories that we are most drawn to, some of the testimonies of God's work in, in human beings and in, in communities, is when you see something that wasn't beautiful, but then it gets restored and becomes beautiful. That, that is just, it brings such joy to the human heart to see that. Um, and that, that, too, is another sign of our deep longing for beauty. Well, the book is Beauty is Your Destiny, How the Promise of Splendor Changes Everything. My guest is Dr. Philip Reichen. He's president of Wheaton College. And it, it seems, uh, Dr. Reichen, and this has been written on uh, kind of perennially, but that uh, beauty is not something that's always been stressed as an important aspect of the Christian life, whether it's in, you know, whether it's expressed in art or, or architecture or music or whatever. It's sort of, sometimes it seems like believers or theologians aren't quite sure what to do with it. Yeah, or maybe think it's not as important um, a topic as some other. So here, here's just an example. If you if you had um, a large room full of evangelical Christians and you asked them, uh, list out the attributes of God and just gave them five minutes to do that, for sure you would see love and justice and holiness and some goodness, some of those things that seem like core attributes of God. You probably would have a few people that would have beauty on their list, particularly if you gave them enough time to think and they were trying to be as expansive as possible. But it would be um, only a, a handful of references compared to some of those other topics that we usually think of as the main topics um, in our in our doctrine of God. Um, or uh, take another example. I think you could um, you could ask people to develop a Christian theology of human sexuality, or develop maybe the doctrine of the image of God in people. Like people could talk about these doctrinal topics and maybe not mention beauty at all, when in fact I think it's one of the most important concepts to think of in all of these different areas of theology. And I I think, by the way, uh, Bill, and I, I don't know the best way to express this, but there's a sense in which any one single topic in theology gives you a beautiful lens Mm. on all the other topics. So if you you could look at everything in terms of mercy and and see how that plays out, you could look at everything in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit and but I think also in terms of beauty. Beauty is a marvelous lens for looking at the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of revelation, the doctrine of human beings, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of the last things. 
it's it's related to all of those topics. So I think it's um, it can be for us a very central topic in Christian theology, even though it was largely neglected through most of the history of Christian theology. It, um, it's a, it's a more important topic that deserves more attention than it usually gets. I, I'm wondering if uh, I, I don't know if your book t- touches specifically on this, but in America, where we tend to be um, practical and 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 so on, uh, beauty is more obviously something that seems to have a contemplative aspect to it. Um, maybe not something that we're as familiar with or comfortable with uh, thinking about. Is that possible? Yeah, I think that is possible, and I, I think um, you know, in in pl- when you're having a lot of difficulty and going through a lot of suffering, and it, it just seems like, oh, that's not beauty. I don't have time for that, or that's not important. When in fact, if someone would do something truly beautiful for you in that moment. Mm-hmm you would realize this is ministering to my soul in a way that nothing else can. I, one, just as a simple place that I say this, it's in the, the um, custom of giving people cut flowers um, at a time of death as they're grieving. In one sense, there's a, a practically minded person that says, oh, don't, don't give us flowers, like give to this scholarship fund or Make uh, you know support this ministry that we've always supported, and 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 that's also a beautiful way to support somebody and, and honor somebody's death. But I I often am thanked for the gift of flowers because they are beautiful, beautiful to look at, hopefully beautiful to smell, and they are they are transient, so they have a kind of vulnerability to it. But people will say, like, I thought I didn't. That wouldn't be that meaningful to me. It it actually really was. Thank you for doing that, and. Um, that's just one example, and I think what is coming through is the power of beauty in those human relationships. That's really something, and the connection of beauty to healing. Yeah. So, and um, and, and I, I think there are, we experience that in a couple of different ways. Here's just another example. Um, as a pastor, I have often seen the power that music can play. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the lives of those who are suffering, grieving, dying. Um, a lot of other horizons are shrinking, but some of those beautiful melodies of hymns or other beautiful music, I mean, I'm, I've definitely been aware of situations where somebody who's a gifted musician will say, I just want to come over. I know you've got a piano. If I could just play quietly for you mm. for an hour. Um and it can be very meaningful to people. So that's just another example of uh, the ability of beauty um, to be a form of ministry. And it's why people that have the capacity to create beauty, um, you know, have a special place in our lives. I mean, another example is there's a beauty, whatever your personal space is, whatever apartment, wherever you have a capacity to welcome somebody in, if you have some attention to the beauty of that environment. It's a ministry to the people, to the person who walks through your door. Um, and it's just another example of how we experience that healing power of beauty. Mm. Well, in terms of a, of a theology of beauty, um, and, and that, that obviously that sounds a, a little bit academic, but where, where do you begin to, to put together to think about, appreciate a theology of, of beauty as it, theology being the study of God as it relates to God himself? 
Well, I think a really good place to begin is with God himself. Um, and I think there's a beauty to God's character. You could you could think about beauty as its own attribute of God. Mm-hmm. You could also see the beauty in other attributes of God. So for I mean, just to give an example, you go with Isaiah into the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter six. The cherubim and the seraphim are singing God's perpetual praise. It's a, it's all about holiness. But as you read the, the passage, what comes through to you is a sense of awe and reverence and beauty. Um, and so I, I think in once you so you can see beauty as an aspect of God's other attributes or as a, an attribute in itself. And you can see the beauty of the what, again, to use a theological term, the intra-Trinitarian relationships. That mm. is the relationship that the Father has with the Son and the Spirit, the Spirit has with the Son and the Father, and, and so forth. There's a beauty about their affection for one another, how they exalt and glorify one another. It's just beautiful to even begin to contemplate their relationships, a mystery beyond what we can understand. But God himself is the source of all beauty, and to gaze upon his beauty in, in his temple, as the psalmist says, that's a great beginning point for us to orient ourselves to the objective reality of beauty, to understand how it meets the, the deep needs of the human heart. Um, so I, I would always want to begin with the doctrine of God, what God has revealed about himself. And that's a great place to begin with beauty. And of course, creation, uh, something that virtually everybody agrees on, whether it's looking at an ocean, a sunset, the mountains, a flower. What have you? Yeah, so not surprisingly, a beautiful God, whatever he touches, is also beautiful. And, uh, you know, the pinnacle of that is human beings made in his image, but everything, you know, creation itself has tremendous beauty. And, you know, one of the things I touch on in the in the book, Bill, is that um, it's often considered to be a problem for Christians that there is evil in the world. Like, mm-hmm. That's a problem. You've got you to gotta say something about that. You've got to resolve that. That's an important topic, and we can talk about that apologetically and pastorally in other ways. Let me just point out that beauty is a problem for the non-believer, <laughs> because if you see beauty in the people you love in the world around you, it awakens a deep desire. You have a feeling that, that you want to praise someone for that beauty. You want to celebrate it in some way. But if you just believe that this is a material universe, that there's not a, a personal creator God behind it, you don't really have a good explanation for the source of that beauty. So th- there are there are intellectual and practical problems for non-believers, not just for believers. We've got things we got to think through and explain as well. But I think beauty is one of those problems, and it absolutely is is a universal. We don't all all perceive beauty in quite the same way. Beauty, to some degree, can vary across cultures, but. Human beings all over the world love the beauty of creation, of a sunset, of flowers. Um, this is this is universal, and it's it's a sign that it, that beauty is a real thing in the universe, in the human heart, and and ultimately in the character of God. Uh, w- one thing you you write about uh, in your book, beauty is your destiny. How the promise of splendor changes everything is well, of course, the beauty of the incarnation, the beauty of God becoming man in. Jesus and the Lord Jesus, and and at the same time, the crucifixion. You say there is beauty in the crucifixion. Yeah, beauty not obviously in the sense of um, physical beauty. Uh, in one sense, there's nothing nothing beautiful at all about bullying, 
torture, humiliation, unjust execution. Like it, it, it's, yeah, it's as ugly as anything could be. Mm-hmm. But when you also see it as a loving, freely given sacrifice, which brings life and forgiveness, which is a demonstration of humility and loving sacrifice. Um, you know, the script Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Could we also say greater beauty has no one than this, at least in terms of their moral actions, than to make this kind of sacrifice? So there's a paradox at the heart of the Christian faith, which is that this ugly sin of unjust execution is also a beautiful offering of sacrifice, which shows us the way to live. So that's the paradox, and I try to wrestle with it in the the book. And I think one sign that the crucifixion is beautiful is how often it is celebrated in song. And I I suppose, I mean, there are other um, representations in the visual arts that have been very common, romantic love, natural beauty of a landscape, but just think about how dominant the crucifixion has been as as something that people want to display, think about, but also portray in a beautiful way. Um, it 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 the the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is in its own right and in its own way so beautiful that it too has demanded replication throughout human history. Um, that's all part of the the beauty of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And speaking of what Jesus has done for us, obviously putting faith in him and in what he did on the cross leads to then salvation for that person and sanctification, which is a process of God, I've never thought of this before, but of making people beautiful in the likeness of Jesus. Yeah, it absolutely is a beautification process. In fact, I mean, if, if... Christian theology had taken a different course in its nomenclature. Um, of course, it makes sense to talk about sanctification, God making a believer holy. It could have been called beautification from the beginning. Hmm. And then we would also say, and by the way, this beauty is a holy beauty. But it, but it absolutely is a beautification process that culminates in glorification when we become physically as well as morally um, beautiful. And, um, you know, it's exciting to see that beauty come forth in another person's life. And, um, and there is a kind of radiance of some of the exceptionally sanctified people that we know, certainly some of the exceptionally sanctified people that I've known. There's just a radiance, a beauty that comes through. It's, it's an inner beauty, but it has a way of expressing itself outwardly um, as well. I know I have to let you go in just a couple of minutes, Dr. Riken, but I'm wondering, um, at, at what point, if we become, is there, is there a, obviously there is some kind of a, a danger, I suppose, to be take, so taken with the beauty of something or someone that at some point it becomes an idolatry of sorts? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, idolatries typically are centered around something good in itself, mm-hmm. a good thing that is turned into an ul- ultimate thing. I had a friend who was um, performing with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Can't remember the name of the conductor. It was a well-known conductor. Somebody, I think, probably somebody deceased at this point, who was con- conducting the orchestra, and was just so overwhelmed with the beauty of what the orchestra was playing that he just said to the orchestra, "Music is God." Well, now, okay, now we're in a realm of idolatry <laughs> here, where the the gift now is celebrated at the level of the giver 
Um, but it's not the it's not the ugly things uh, so much that become idolatries. It's the good things and the beautiful things that become the most powerful, tempting idolatries. So, yeah, if we pursued beauty for its own sake, um, just relished the pleasures that come with beauty without using them for the good of others, you could pursue beauty unjustly. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you an amazing example of that um, is a, uh, is recorded in a, in a book. I think the book is called The Feather Heist, but it's an amazing story of somebody who became so enamored of the beauty of fishing lures tied according to 19th century standards with the traditional bird feathers that he broke into the Museum of Natural History in London and stole and ultimately destroyed um, countless priceless specimens, bird specimens from the 19th century. Hmm. But there, it was this craving after beauty. It may seem bizarre to us, but it's kind of a parable of how beauty can become an idolatry. So that needs to be surrendered like everything else to the Lordship of Jesus Christ seen in the context of his beauty. And when we are ready to receive beauty as a gift in our salvation, in our glorification, we don't need to strive after it or try to gain it in ways that God doesn't have for us, we can be content to let the beautifier uh, beautify us. And there's a surrender to his greater beauty. And, and that's when beauty takes its proper place and important place in our Christian lives. I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Reichen, many of us are maybe along the more pragmatic lines, uh, and, and beauty is not something that typically crosses our consciousness. So how can we maybe be more awakened, more aware to beauty? Yeah, so it's a, a good question. I'll just mention two things, Bill. One is just to be aware, just be sensitive and aware of when we ourselves, within our own capacity, which may be limited, are experiencing beauty, and just to enjoy that and maybe share it with somebody else and name it and say, I, what I'm experiencing right now is a sense of beauty, and I want to give God praise for that. It's a gift from Him. Another thing we can do is talk to people who have maybe even expertise or sensitivity in particular areas of beauty hmm. and say, show this to me. Like, I, I want to experience this. I'm, I happen to be a birder. Maybe I mentioned that earlier. I yeah. don't know. Um, but I, you know, I went with a friend who was willing to go out with me and never really noticed the birds before he came back at the end of the walk. He said, thank you for that. I'm probably not going to become a birder, but I'm going to pay better attention because there are, I'll notice what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. And there are people that can do that with baking, with the visual arts. There are people that can help us see the beauty of certain aspects of human relationships or the beauty of gymnastics, whatever it is. I think we can cultivate our own awareness of beauty by noticing the people that are really sensitive to beauty and learning a little bit from them. It's just a joyful experience that brings enrichment to life. And living a life that's beautiful, obviously a life that points to the most beautiful person who ever lived. And that, that would be reason enough, I think, for us to uh, pursue beauty in our own lives. Because what is attractive to people for salvation is seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. And strangely, surprisingly, one of his main avenues for that is for people to see that beauty in us, in the life of the church. Um, we don't want our ugliness to turn people away from the beauty of Jesus. We want to see our growing beauty point them in the direction of Jesus. And, and as much as anything else, that's an important, that, that's a reason why this uh, topic of beauty is urgently important for our world. Whether people read this book or not, um, let's all pay more attention to beauty and, and see how beautiful that pursuit can become in us and through us.
You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Wheaton College President Dr. Philip Riken, author of the book, Beauty is Your Destiny. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Jen Oshman on how your church can reach out to people by welcoming them in. We were wildly different and and sort of marginalized. We were on the outside, and these people welcomed us in. And so that's, I guess, where the seeds were planted for me to then want to grow up and also be a welcoming presence in my local church. That's tomorrow at this same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.